Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you guys. Thanks for the morning. Appreciate the morning back. Uh, that's good. Hey, we're going to be uh, in uh, diving into our second part of our series, Men, Women in the Kingdom of God. We're spending the next, uh, well, now five weeks. It's a six-week teaching series where we're looking at what Scripture has to say about men, women, our relationships, uh, both in the home, in the church, and just in society in general. So today... We're going to continue on that trek. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. We're going to be talking about marriage in the new humanity, marriage in the new humanity. So Ephesians 5, if you've got a, a copy of scripture, I invite you to turn there. I always want to remind you that if you don't have a copy of the Bible uh, uh, that you own, we would love to give you one as you head out today. And uh, you can stop by the Welcome Center. They'll just hand you that and say, uh, it's yours. So just grab that on the way out. Uh, also, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things as you're turning there uh, that we're really laboring as a church to do, and I want to invite you to take part in this. Um, we are building a prayer team, okay? Um, we have had a, a group of people that have been praying for the last couple years uh, on a Wednesday night, faithfully, consistently, and uh, we felt going into this year, this is the month where we spend uh, partnering with uh, other churches across our city and our community uh, called Saturate, and we saturate our community in prayer. And uh, last year, we began that journey together. This year, we felt like we're going to take the next step forward, and we really sensed that the Lord was wanting us to build a prayer team that meets uh, pre-service. We'll have an hour uh, or a time before service where you can come and pray. Uh, we'll ha have a prayer room set up, and then we're also building a prayer team that would be post-service. One of the things that we want to grow in is intercessory prayer. We want to begin to pray for one another intentionally, uh, engage with one another on a level of our need, uh, and engage God together and support one another And we're usher, as we usher in a movement of God among us. And we believe that God wants to meet with us. So what you can do is if you want to be a part of that, you want to learn more about it, just go to journeyjonesworld.com slash pray. You can do it right now. You can do it uh, later today. But let us know. There's some options on there. You're not signing up when you do it. You're getting more information. So our prayer team, our leaders, Ben and Carol Morgan, uh, they can reach out to you, follow up with you, give you more details and stuff like that. Our hope is beginning the first Sunday in March, we'll have that prayer room operational, we'll have that prayer team uh, for post-service prayer available to you. Um, and I know many of you catch me after a service or something like that. We want to make that much more intentional where you know where to go, you've got someone praying for your needs, and you can have that consistently week after week every Sunday when we gather together as a church. It's a big part uh, of becoming a house of prayer and having a culture of prayer here. The other thing I want to remind you out, uh, about is uh, one of the things we're doing uh, uh, that I'm really excited about is we're having a church-wide Q&A that corresponds with the series that we're in, Men and Women in the Kingdom of God. Uh, the first one of those, we're going to have two of those. The first one is February 20th, um, and it's going to be uh, at 4 p.m right here at the church. Okay, so one thing I want to ask you to do, though, is I want you to uh, register that for that if you can, not because... Um, Anything other than we're trying to figure out how much space do we need and how many snacks do we need, so on and so forth like that. This is something that we're kind of piloting and we're hoping that we can do more of when we have a series. I have people ask me all the time, hey, is there a time where we can ask more questions? Or, you know, a lot of times people say, I want to raise my hand in the middle of something and, and get more clarity. And I totally get that. That's the way I am. And so we want to create more uh, opportunities for us as a church to gather together and dialogue and just not listen to a monologue or me talk or something like that. Uh, and it also would help me because like today, just to be honest, with you. Uh, this morning, I got up at uh, four o'clock and I culled out about four pages of notes. So uh, that'll give me an opportunity to uh, also be able to engage uh, with you on some information that might not make it in on a Sunday and might answer some more questions. So be here for that. Um, go ahead and register if you will. Um, you can go online and do that, but there's also, I think, on the Journey Weekly that you were handed as you came in. I think there's a QR code or, or something like that that you can go on or a link that you can go on and register, and that would help us get uh, the ball rolling. So here's the deal. Um, we're in this series. Last week we kicked it off and we began in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. And we just laid a foundation um, for where we're going. This week we're taking a little bit of a deeper dive into uh, a pretty long section of scripture. And so, like I said, I called out a few things uh, today because uh, there's just so many things we could talk about and so many things we want to talk about. But it has everything to do with marriage. And uh, uh, some of us are in here and you're like, man, it's one life weekend, you know, of all the, all the Sundays to have a marriage uh, sermon is this week. But here's the thing is marriage, um, I think we would all have to agree, hits all of us on some level. 
okay? Um, for some of us, when we talk about marriage, um, it's our real experience. It's where we're living. For some of us, um, it's just the fact that we're, we're associated about, uh, with it by extension. That means that we all have parents. We all um, uh, have friends. We are in a society where marriage is kind of like um, the centerpiece of society and civilization as it is pretty much everywhere across the world through the centuries, through all civilizations. It's, it's been one of those things that's been a staple. And there's a reason for that. Um, I find that um, when I look at marriage and I have conversations about marriage, that uh, it really is the kind of what my dad told me before we, uh, before I got married almost 27 years ago. He said, Dan, it's going to be either the best thing in your life or the worst thing in your life. And as I've done ministry uh, over the last 30 years, uh, I found that to be true both in my experience and in my experience with others. For me, quite honestly, it's been the best thing in my life. Um, but I've also uh, sat in, um, in an office with people or over coffee, and that has not been their experience. Uh, some of you, uh, it is the place you run to. For some of you, it, uh, it is a place of heartache and pain. Uh, for some of you, you grew up in a household that uh, was marked by a lot of tension, uh, and, and maybe you've got multiple homes that you're trying to juggle around the holidays. And so, I mean, we would have to say that all of us, uh, you know, we all deal with this on some level, even if you're not currently in a relationship. Um, as a matter of fact, the world, I think, I've noticed this over the last 10 to 15 years, has become much more cynical about marriage. Um, I, I think that uh, we've seen that. The data shows that. Uh, divorce rate is higher than it's ever been. Uh, I think you see this now where uh, the generation coming up are choosing, many of them are choosing to get married later or not get married at all. Um, a lot of them are cohabitating or living together. That's a fancy way of saying they're, they're living together, you know, or, or something like that. And, and a lot of people are making those choices because uh, there's just this rising cynicism. Is like, it, can this institution of marriage, can this relationship, uh, can it be any more than a strife and tension? Is it just a legal piece of paper? Is it just something that we do because it's what we've always done? Is it just something so we can be taxed differently? What is this relationship? What is this really all about? And I think the world has offered us a lot of different answers for that. Uh, as uh, a lot of people are not getting married, you, you've seen the rise in recent years of open marriages, you've seen uh, divorces, as I mentioned, and you see a lot of different takes on what marriage is, redefining what marriage is. And this is the culture that we live in. There's a lot of questions. And as I said last week, we need clarity, don't we? We need clarity when it comes to a guiding light in the midst of all this confusion and all these things. And that's why I love talking about this topic and specifically this passage, because what I've experienced in my life, uh, I think personally, and what I've seen in others is what we're going to talk about today is for me, the hinge pin of what good marriages swing on. I think it's one of those things where when we, when we pivot through marriage and we pivot through relationships, when we look at what marriage is supposed to be, I think the principle we're going to talk about today in Ephesians chapter five is the one that illuminates for us the best way, the gospel way marriage is supposed to work. And it opens for us um, all kinds of opportunities to experience and to reflect the gospel in new and profound ways. And so we're going to talk about Ephesians 5 today. It's a famous passage, and it makes a lot of sense why it's famous. You're going to see it in just a second. But in order to get into the message, last week we put a question up there, and we're going to do it again today. I'm going to throw a question up here just to get us going, because I think a lot of people, as I mentioned, have a lot of questions. And one of the questions is, is marriage all about who's in charge? Um, oftentimes the church has offered um, certain kinds of definitions and certain kinds of explanations for marriage. Uh, and sometimes that falls on our ears about like, well, who's in charge and about what roles are and those type of things. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to reflect on this question. Is marriage all about who's in charge? But let me just read the passage for you. And uh, then we'll kind of react to it. We'll uh, break it down. We'll back up into it and get the ball rolling. But let me just read the whole passage. We don't always do this, but I think it's important, especially this week, just to be able to see the whole picture. So let's read through uh, verses 21 down through verses 33, and then we're going to jump back up and work through the whole chapter. This is what Paul writes. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to, submit yourselves, excuse me, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Everybody doing okay so far? 
Okay. Uh, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And we'll finish it out, 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, a lot of stuff to digest uh, in there. So in order to understand this, um, what we're gonna have to do, I think, is uh, hopefully you realize this by now, but, well, and you've, if you've been around here, you've, uh, the, I hope this is your experience, is that when we, when we read scripture, when we study scripture, and when we begin to break scripture down, what we try our very best to do is to lay down our presuppositions, uh, understand our own cultural biases, our own personal biases, and we try to set those aside. Because before we read something like this, with all this language and all these metaphors and all these analogies and so on and so forth, it doesn't really help us to come in with our preconceived definitions of whatever someone's saying. Uh, you wouldn't want that if, if you wrote a letter to someone, if, you, uh, if someone just impressed on you and your words what they thought you meant. You wouldn't want that. And we don't want to do that to Paul. Paul um, obviously was writing at a very specific time. Uh, we believe this was written around uh, AD 60 to a church uh, across uh, a group of house churches across modern day Turkey in Asia Minor. Um, and uh, it was a very specific time. It was a very specific situation. And it was at the cusp, at the leading edge of uh, what the church was doing and what the church was becoming. There was a lot of questions. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter. And uh, this is a little bit of a different letter because what Paul does in this letter, uh, it's not uh, written, most people think, to address a specific issue or a specific problem. Uh, it's probably akin to the letter of Romans. Uh, it was more of a cyclical level letter or one that was circulated around. Uh, and what would happen would be that they would uh, take the letter that would have been sent by Paul and someone would stand up in a house church. Uh, it wasn't a room like this. They didn't have stages. They didn't have pulf- pulpits. They met in homes. And as they met in homes, these household units would gather together and they would listen to the words of Paul. And they would try to gain direction and understanding about this new identity, this new humanity that they had become in Jesus Christ. And as they did, it began to trickle down into all different kinds of areas. And so it it makes a makes a lot of sense. By the time we get to chapter five, Paul has uh, opened the door for a lot of things. He's talked about the identity of uh, who they are based on what Christ has done and what Christ has been working out. He calls it this mystery that God has now revealed, where he's now brought Jews and Gentiles alike into one household, into one family, and they are now the body of Christ. They are now the place where the spirit of God rests. They are now the church within an age in the Roman empire where They have an overlapping of kingdoms where you have the Roman empire and then you have the King Jesus where these two things overlap and they live within the tension of understanding what it's like to follow King Jesus in the midst of their culture, in the midst of their situation, much like we do today. How do we follow Jesus as kingdom people where we live out of the design of God and we look forward to the eschatological future of what God will bring in as we usher in the kingdom of God? And most of our decisions, like theirs, uh, live inside that tension. As a new humanity, living in a fallen world, how do we now gain insight? How do we gain clarity on what our relationship should look like? How do we gain clarity on what our lives should look like? For the one sole purpose that was the most paramount purpose for Paul, and he states this in all of his letters, it seems, over and over again, is that he's most concerned with the advancement of the gospel. As we get into this passage, I think it's helpful to remember that Paul was not a marriage counselor, thank the Lord, right? Uh, He was a missionary. And he wants us to see our relationships, he wants us to see our lives all through the lens of Christ and Christ's mission through us to the world. And so if you could just kind of get into the shoes of this first century church for a second, you're gathered in a house church, you look around the home, 
And inside this home would have been built up of um, husbands and wives. It would have had parents and children. And it would be by extension, it would have slaves and masters. And as this would take place, you gotta be able to feel what it would feel like as each passing word was read. And Paul finally, this, he gets to this point where everybody's probably asking in the room, well, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for us? And so Paul takes a step right into their courtyard, right into the room with them, and he begins to speak into the tension that they were all feeling of this overlap between the new humanity and their real experience. And he begins to give them insight. But in order to see where he turns the corner after uh, in his letter, I think you gotta back up a little bit. Um, because what we have to do is we have to really grasp, I think, what Paul is trying to get to in order to understand where he's going. So let's back up to verse one for just a second in Ephesians chapter five. And let's just see where Paul's taking this after he's laid out for us a lot of who we are and what the church is and what the mission is. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, let's just stop there for a second because I think that it's gonna help us to get a pretty good definition of love. Um, we live uh, in a world where when we say love, we fall in and out of love. Uh, love is primarily a feeling for us. It's primarily a noun. Uh, it's something that if you can fall in, you can fall out of. Um, we like romantic comedies and we like following the tension of people follow, falling in love and uh, you know, kind of going through all the stuff and then within an hour and a half, two hours, um, I mean, they've known each other a week and they are going to spend the rest of their lives together. You know, uh, we love those kind of things because it kind of encapsulates what uh, all of us feel culturally. You know, I think there's a reason why those resonate with us is because we all like the idea of love. Um, I think one thing that's interesting that's happened probably in the last several years uh, uh, that is really weird to me because I'm almost 50 is now like there's all these like um, prom promposals or something like that. People are now like proposing for prom. Okay, I don't understand it, but whatever. Like, I mean, you know, hot air balloons, you know, uh, riding stuff in the sky and all stuff like that for a dance. And uh, it, it's just different, right? I mean, if you grew up in the 80s, maybe even the 90s, it was like, you know, hey, will you go to uh, go on a date with me? Will you go to the dance with me? Now it's all kinds of ways. You gotta, you gotta outdo one another. Proposals, all those type of things. Weddings, you know, now it's all about the photos. It's all about the video, it's all about the presentation, all these things, right? And so there's a yearning in us to experience the feeling of love. And there's nothing wrong with that. Love is a feeling. Um, uh, I can tell you right now, I have love for my wife. I have love for my kids. Uh, there is emotion and that is good. All right. God created that for us. But when we talk about love in this passage, Paul's not primarily talking about the feeling of love. Um, he's talking about the other facet of love. And you know this as well, that real love is not just about falling in love. Real love is about staying in love. And staying in love uh, oftentimes looks a lot like a verb, not necessarily a noun. Matter of fact, if you want to kind of have a working definition of love, I think this is probably a pretty good one. Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. It's an action. It's a decision. It's something active we do. And so what Paul's doing as he's worked through this letter and he gets to chapter five, he's talking to the church and he says, listen, uh, I want all of you to love one another. I want you to act for the well-being of one another. Now, if you are in the room, this house church or in the courtyard, wherever they were happened to be meeting uh, in this place, um, this would have been in and of itself an earth shattering idea. Um, and we're gonna get into exactly why that is, but if you back up into chapter five, verse one, remember what he said, follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So let me just stop and ask a question. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to husbands and wives in this setting? Yes or no? How many people think yes? How many people think he's just talking to one or the other? Okay, all right. He's addressing the entire church. They're in a room together and he says, church, men and women, parents and children, and in their context in Rome in that day, masters and slaves. 
And he says to them, I want you to follow God's example like his children and I want you to love one another. I want you to act for the well-being of another. And this, right out of the gate, would have got them asking questions. And so Paul, step by step, begins to work, work through what does it look like to love one another? And he breaks into about three restrictions. He talks about sexual morality. He talks about greed and uh, things, of that, uh, th- things of that nature. And he talks about these are, th- these are not the things that show love to one another. These are not the things that uh, follow God's example. Uh, they use people. They abuse people. They use people for your own, potent- your own personal gain. Uh, and so he gives some restrictions. But then in verse 18, uh, 15 through 18, he turns the corner again. And he doesn't just give them restriction. He begins to unpack and give them a command. And here's the command he gives in verse 15, and it leads down into verse 18. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with with the Spirit. Now, I highlighted be filled with the Spirit because what Paul does in verse 18 is he, he does this really long sentence, and um, we don't have to go into an English lesson here, but we know that in a sentence, there has to be a subject and a verb, right? And so, filled with the Spirit in Paul's long sentence from verse 18 down uh, through the middle of the passage we're about to go into is he basically says, this is the command. The command is I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you would have read the whole passage, if you would have read the whole letter that Paul outlines, if you'd back up in in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, you would know that what Paul says is that you have been given new birth in Christ. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so they would have been armed with this information that, okay, you've been sealed by the Spirit. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't just talk about you being sealed with the Spirit. Now he talks about being continually filled with the Spirit. And, you know, a logical question that you would ask if you were hearing this for the first time would be like, well, how do you do that? How is one continually filled with the Spirit? What does that even mean? And so Paul, basically, he breaks in and he says, well, let me explain to you what I mean. And here's what he says in verse 19 down through verse 21. He says, this is the way you're filled with the Spirit, by speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and song, uh, songs of the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, everything that I've highlighted there are participles. As a matter of fact, let me just go to the next slide. I'll break it down for you. The verb in the sentence is to be filled with the Spirit. This is what what he's instructing the church to do. And then he says, this is how you do it. You speak to one another, you sing to the Lord, you make music to the Lord, you give thanks to the Lord, that's just say to the Lord, and you, sub- you do it by submitting to one another. These are the ways that he modifies the verb and he explains to them and he sets up where he's about to go. He says, this is how you're filled with the spirit. This is how you become imitators of God. And this is what it looks like for the church to actually begin to embody the gospel and the implications of this new humanity who God has made us to be, right? And so if you just focus to where we, where we started today, if you just jump in in verse 21, verse 21, what did it say? Verse 21 in chapter five, if you'll throw it up there, go to that next slide real quick. Uh, Ephesians 521, uh, can we go to 521? Well, there it is. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So same question I asked before, who's he talking to in this passage? Is he talking to husbands and wives in verse 21? Yes or no? <laughs> Come on, somebody's gonna have to say it. Yeah, okay, we're, we're, we don't, we're kind of, we've got different opinions. We got a yes, we got a no. Paul is telling the entire church to submit to one another. He told the entire church to love one another. Now, the word submit, how many of you have a positive connotation when you hear the word submit? Raise your hand if you've got a positive connotation in your mind. A few of us. How many of you have a negative connotation in your mind? Okay. Most of us, I think today, most of the room today by survey, when you heard the word submit, you had a negative connotation to that word. Um, it's the word we have. It's the word uh, that uh, is used here. When I think of the word submit, and, and this is the vision or the picture that comes to my mind, um, uh, 
I think of like UFC, MMA, you know what I mean? I'm just telling you, this is what I think of because this is where I hear this word. When you submit someone, you know what, what do they do? They tap out, right? They're tapping like, okay, 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 I'll give up. And it's usually like kind of using that picture for just a second. And it's probably not a good picture because it's not always like that. But I'm just telling you, this is kind of like common pictures that we have when we, ha- when we think of the word submit. We think of someone that's more powerful forcing themselves on someone else and making them submit. But the word that we use for submit, the word that Paul chooses to use is a different kind of word. It doesn't mean what we usually, the negative connotation that we have. It's actually, I can see right now that the word I think is misspelled on there, but here's, here's the word. Okay, here's the word. Uh, if you go to it, submit is hippotasso, and it means to put under. It means to prioritize the well-being and the interest of others above your own interest. So to hippotasso, to submit, is to place yourself under the needs of someone else to actually enhance their well-being. It's a way to serve someone. It's a way to help someone. And the word comes up over and over again uh, in Scripture. But what, what Paul's essentially saying here is he's actually hearkening back to what he said in chapter 5, verse 1, when he told everyone to love one another. And remember what, a love, what love is? It's a commitment to act for the well-being of another. So what is he telling the entire church to do? The men and the women, the husbands and the wives, everyone in the church, he's telling everyone in the church, I want you to hippotasso one another and I want you to love one another. Now, where would Paul get his picture of what it means to submit and what it means to love? Well, you can pick a lot of instances. There's a lot of examples. One of the most clear, I think, is in his letter to the Philippians. It's a famous passage. It's something you can jot down and go back and memorize. It's a great one to memorize. Philippians chapter two. Remember what he said to the Philippians. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was Christ's mindset? Well, what was it, Paul? Well, let's see what it was in verse 6. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, Let's just go back to those two verses, Ephesians 5 and verse, verse 1 and Ephesians 5, 21. Remember what he said? He says, everybody in the church, follow God's example, walk in the way of love just the way Christ loved you. Remember what he said to everybody in the church, 521, the participle that modifies the verb, uh, which is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is what he's telling the entire church to do. This is the explicit template or paradigm for everything that follows down through chapter five, verse 22, all the way through chapter six, verse nine. It is a communal uh, command. It's, It's a way for him to say, this is the expectation for all of us because we're all God's children. We're all supposed to take on the nature of Christ. We're all supposed to follow Christ. And so how do you unpack this in their day? Well, that breaks into a section in verse 22 down through chapter 6, verse 9, that's typically referred to uh, by a a term called the household codes. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk first about husbands and wife relationship. He's going to address master and slave relationships in the Roman world. He's going to talk about parents and children relationships. And so... There's a lot of stuff in here. We're gonna focus on husbands and wives because that's the series that we're in and we're gonna stop at the end of that. Though there's a lot of other things that have implications that we could get into. Maybe we'll do that on the Q&A night. But here's the thing we have to get into. Let's, just for a second, let's step out of this room and let's step into ancient Asia Minor. Let's step into a house church and let's try to begin to put on the mindset and the, and the setting, the scene, and the life experience to the best of our ability, what it was like to be them when they first heard these words. Now, the first thing we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to redefine what our culture, how our culture operates, right? And so one thing you have to know about the Roman culture is it was a, uh, it was a highly stratified or structured society that actually kind of was built on certain levels of hierarchy, 
okay? So I'll throw it up here, and this was kind of a, a basic template. Um, it was a very stratified um, environment, beginning with the emperor himself. As a matter of fact, when, uh, like a, um, when uh, they were deified, I mean, there was a whole Roman worship cult for the emperor. Uh, they would call themselves gods or uh, at coronation, son of God, things like that. And so the emperor was at the top of the pecking order. If you go down through it, it's almost like a caste system. There's like a ruling elite. Then there's uh, the men, which are the patriarchs, uh, the people that would rule the home. Then under them would be the women. And then under the women would be the children and the slaves. And this is the way they operate. This was what they grew up in. This is what they lived in. This is what, uh, this was the air they breathed. This was the water they drank. This is the way they lived. Um, they live within a household that did not really question this. Uh, as a matter of fact, what happened was this would really trickle down all the way into the home. Uh, and the reason for that was, is the, the home was kind of like the miniature or the microcosm uh, of the whole. As a matter of fact, uh, here's a quote to kind of help you understand. Uh, this is from David Balk and Carolyn Osayek. Uh, the household was the miniature reflection, the microcosm of the state, which was the larger version, the microcosm of the household. And so there was an interchangeable idea, like the way that the emperor worked um, is the way the ruling elite worked, which is the way that the uh, men and the patriarchs worked, which is the way the women worked over the slaves and over the children. And uh, this was the way the home was or organized. This is the way the, the house was organized. Uh, and the reason that Paul's talking about this and he's addressing all these different groups is because all these different groups were in the home together. And so you had to address all these, but here's the interesting thing about it, is that what Paul's doing with household codes is he's not actually inventing anything. As a matter of fact, uh, when you look at household codes, uh, Greco-Roman culture had a lot of these. Uh, you can go back and study it. I mean, people like Plutarch wrote about it, Aristotle, Plato, all these different people wrote about it. And so what Paul's essentially doing is he's commandeering something that they would have understood, and he's taking these codes that would define how they're supposed to operate, within this stratified structure. And then he's going to actually insert the gospel. He's going to put the yeast of the gospel, as Jesus would say, into the culture. And then he's going to see how it grows and how it begins to implicate all these different relationships. Now, to give kind of an understanding of how this thing operated, that, that stratified environment, I wanna give you one quote from Aristotle because a lot of this was rooted in what we'll call ontological identity. What that means is um, there was just kind of natural, like some people were superior and some people were inferior. Some people were ruled, uh, rulers and some people, they would say by nature of who they were, uh, who they are, they're ruled over. Okay, uh, and Aristotle believed this. Here's what Aristotle said about in his household codes. He says, there, there are by nature various classes of rulers and ruled. So as you can see, it's kind of a caste system. For the free rules the slaves and the male, the female, and the man, the child in a different way. And all possess the, these various parts of the soul. So they're getting, he's getting into like, who somebody actually is, who they really are, but possesses them in different ways. For the slave has not got deliberate part at all. See, they saw that slaves were a different type of uh, being completely. That's how you could justify slavery, right? And the female has it, but without full authority. That means that she's a different level than a slave, but she's not at the level of the male. And then while the child has it put in an undeveloped form. So, this child would grow up and they would grow up into what they have, but they're, they're not at the level, obviously, of children of being able to grow into that. So this was the mindset that kind of governed, this is a good example of what governed and kind of um, formed, if you will, the environment for these house churches. This is what they lived in. Uh, and nobody questioned it until, until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, the gospel paints a completely different picture of earthly relationships. The true king steps in and redefines who people are, their identity, their value, what they're worth. And he begins to erase those distinctions and he begins to clothe everyone in the person of Christ. And so a good place to look at that is one of, one of Paul's other uh, places he addressed this was in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. 
You may have heard this before. This is Paul talking about the effects of Christ. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. We have one common father now in this family. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul do? He injects the gospel into all these environments and all these situations and all these cultures. He says, you're Roman, injected into the culture. You're Jewish, injected into the culture. You're Gentile, injected into the culture. And what happens when you do that is there is one consistency is that no longer are these earthly distinctions the things that define us. No longer is there superiority and inferiority based on gender or class or um, uh, any other designation. Now we're all clothed in Christ. And so we all operate in the same level of mutuality. So basically what does he do? He changes the way, because of the gospel, he changes the way we see everything. And he brings us back to what I would view as what we talked about last week, the divine design in Genesis 1 and 2, pre-fall, before the consequence and curse of sin. And it looks forward to what Revelation 22, 3 says when it says that the curse will finally be removed into the new heaven and the new earth. And so now where every tribe and every tongue, um, all, those, all those things that would divide us here earthly, now we, as the image bearers of Christ, the church, we get to step into this reality that we live in, usher in that, that future of future reality that things are supposed to be like, and we get to live as beacons of light within a fallen culture and a fallen world. And that's what happens in Ephesians chapter five to the church at Ephesus. So the question then is, okay, well, the question was, okay, what is it, how does that play out um, if we're supposed to submit to one another, doesn't Paul say that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? Uh, well, he does say that. And he also is going to say that husbands should submit to their wife. And he's going to unpack what that looks like. So in order to see it, let's look at verse 22. And this is what he says in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So here's what's happened. Paul is not actually changing a lot for the wives other than really one thing. He's saying the reason that you would submit and what would submit is hippotasso. The reason that you would submit is that you would place yourself underneath another for their well-being. So you choose to do this. And why do you choose to do it now? You don't do it because it's the expectation from the Roman culture or what you grew up in. What you're doing now is out of reverence for the Lord. Now, I'm going to hit pause for just a second because I think we have to understand uh, a little bit more about Roman marriage, okay? Um, again, it's not like um, what we paint in movies. It's not like you date a while, then you get engaged, and then you go off for this, you know, great uh, wedding, you know, at the beach or something like that, or you rent a church or rent a facility. No, you don't rent a church. I guess you do. I guess you have to pay for the facility, whatever. Um, you'd think I didn't know since I work at a church. Yes, you have to pay to use the facility because we have to clean it. I think that's what's, I think that's true. Sorry. Okay, never mind. Um, that's just been in my head, sorry. Um, it wasn't like that for Rome. Matter of fact, the average age for a Roman woman, I would say a girl, to get married was 14 to 15. The average age for a Roman male to get married was about 25 to 30. Now, right out of the gate, all of us just cringed a little bit, and rightfully so. Um, this is how different the culture was. But not only that, the marriages were not uh, long engagements where they look longingly at one another and, man, hope that we can get, be together one day. These were arranged marriages, primarily from the fathers, got together, and it was primarily a property agreement. It would involve a dowry and a bride price. It would be a, a way to consolidate wealth over generations to provide security for the family unit. And, and so this, just right out of the gate, should signal to us things are different. Things are different. The way that they thought about relationships, if you're a teenage girl and you go into a marriage, just think for a second, just think for a second what Paul's getting ready to say and how liberating what he's getting ready to say is. Because the idea, the idea that you had any kind of... Um, 
agency, if you had any agency as a woman, as a wife, I mean, that would have been a very foreign concept to them. What you experience here, what all of us experience in here when it comes to our relationships in marriage uh, in the West, in the 21st century, is a far cry from their reality. And so submission for them was something that was imputed on them and expected. And you can understand why. It would have been a, a property agreement. They would go into a marriage and this would be the way that they would progress through life. And this would be the environment they lived in. But Paul says, listen, you can choose any environment that you're in and you can leverage it for the gospel. You can take on a posture in a really difficult situation and you can actually follow Christ in the situation that you're in. And Paul had a habit of saying this. He, he told people all the time, uh, he would say, look, wherever you find yourself, whatever situation you're in, don't leave that situation, but instead use that situation to the best of your ability to honor the Lord and to advance the gospel. Now, let me hit pause again, second pause button. What this doesn't mean, I wanna make sure you understand this, is I am not advocating, nor is Paul advocating for you to stay, if you're a, a, a wife or a woman in an abusive relationship of any sort, he's not saying that in everything, in every situation, you stay. He's not telling you that. And I'm telling you that if you're in that situation, you need to run, you don't need to stay. Um, and that's as a pastor, as a friend, as a man, I'm telling you, do not stay in that type of relationship. That is not what he's saying. These words have been abused and used in so many ways to cause so much pain and so much harm to people, and they are not what Paul intended to say. He's telling us to submit to one another for one another's well-being. He's not, for, he's not sitting there telling us to sit in situations that are dangerous and harmful to us in a marriage relationship. That is not a biblical marriage um, where a husband would dominate his wife or hurt his wife. He's not saying that. And I have to clarify that because in churches, there will be some that will say that. And ha they have said that. And that's not what we believe the Bible teaches about these relationships. So when he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he says wives submit to your husbands and everything. What's he essentially saying? Well, first of all, I have to understand too that in verse 22, the word submit to is actually not even there in the original Greek. What it actually is, is the translators have tried to give us some clarity because he says submit to one another. And so they inject um, the verb in there to help us to understand, to make it more readable. But probably a more literal reading would be why, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, but they stick that in there because they want to understand that this is Paul telling them to voluntarily place themselves in the relationship for the well-being of the other, right? So this is the idea. So then he says, okay, well, he says, because here's the thing you have to understand, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So I'm going to step over here to the dry erase board because I could not figure out how to put this on the slide. And I threw a curveball to everybody this morning and said, hey, I think we're going to put a dry erase board on, this, on the stage. And everybody was scrambling around. So we're going to switch and see if we can put me up here. It may look horrible. Well, I, I'm on it. So, you know, whatever. Um, but here's, here's what he's saying, because we have to track with this. Paul uses a metaphor and he said, what does he say? He says, Christ is, what does he call it? He says, Christ is the what? Somebody yell it out. He's the head, right? So Christ is the head. Now, when we see that, I'm gonna draw that up there. When we see that, what we do is we, we've gotta figure out what does he mean by that? What does he mean by Christ being the head? Now, when we see that, um, we think all kinds of things. Like, I mean, we think like, head, we think uh, she's a head of a company or he's head of a committee. We talk about head of the household. Uh, we throw a lot of those things around. And typically when we use that word head in our connotation, modern, modern culture, um, we're thinking somebody that has, is, is the leader, somebody is uh, the authority, right? And a lot of times in Greek, they use that word, it's the word kephale. They use that word to mean authority. There's, there's evidence for that. But there's also evidence that in some situations, the word kephale means something else. It means source, uh, origin, um, and you can see where somebody might get that, um, whereas uh, the, the woman, uh, Eve, came from man, from the side of man we talked about last week. 
Uh, you can see where that came, that, that could possibly come from. Um, Christ uh, is the head of the church, where the church comes from Christ. Um, and so you can see where there's uh, overtones of authority. You can, sometimes you can see where there's overtones of uh, the word source. But most often um, of all the occurrences, what it typically just means is this thing right here. <laughs> all right. Uh, so let's not get it twisted and, and let's not just assume we know what Paul's talking about right out of the gate. Paul, what he's typically doing and what the New Testament typically does is it talks about the physical head itself and where it sits on the body, okay? Where it sits on the body. Now, um, there's a lot of evidence. This is a lot of stuff I culled out of my message that we can talk about at the Q&A. But what we have to do to gain clarity, because there's a lot of options when we use the word head. And in our modern culture, I hear a lot of people use the word headship, like, oh, well, what about headship? What about headship? Well, headship is not in the Bible as a, as a stated definition, okay? Headship is a concept that we refer back to metaphors that Paul uses. And so we have to be really careful when we understand when he says Christ is the head, what's he really talking about? Well, fortunately, he helps us in the passage himself. And so where's the best place Guys, where, where's the best place to look for what he would possibly mean when he uses the word head? Well, it'd be in the context, right? And so when he, who, does he, who else does he mention in the passage with Christ? The church, right? And he says the church, he's gonna call it the body, right? So what does he also say? About, uh, about Christ and the church. What does Christ do as the head of the church? Somebody else? He's a savior of the church, right? What do we know from Philippians 2? What do we know from what Paul said in other places? What does the head do in this situation? The head submits to the church. Now, some of y'all just freaked out for a second, right? But what did Philippians chapter two say? Philippians chapter two said that what Christ did was he humbled himself and what did he do? He made himself obedient unto death. He did it to do what? So that he could provide for the church. He did it to meet the needs of the church. So when we look for a definition of head, what we have to understand is what Paul's essentially saying is that he's changing. Remember that structure? He's changing the way that the structure work. And it makes sense because remember things like Jesus would say, he would say things like, he would say the first will be last and the last will be first. If you wanna be the greatest, you gotta become the least, right? Remember how he said all those things? He, he, he confronted his disciples when they said, hey, we wanna, be, we wanna sit at your right hand and your left. And he said, listen, you don't know what you're asking. This is not the way my kingdom works. We are in a culture that's obsessed with who's in charge. But Jesus says that the way that you lead in any environment, if you follow the template of Christ, the paradigm of Christ, is you submit, you serve. Who's supposed to serve? Everybody's supposed to serve. Husbands, you're supposed to serve your wives. Wives, you're su supposed to submit to your husbands. And as you're both submitting to one another, what ends up happening is everyone's needs are met and everyone is elevated everyone is cared for. And this is the good news of the gospel. Matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5.25. Let's throw it up there real quick and then we can move back to the thing. Just throw, let's throw the scripture up there. Let's get me off there because you can see my bald spot right there. <laughs> so there we go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what does he say? Well, Paul just said, this is, the, this is the idea, right? Is that the head, which is at the top of the body, and um, basically like you would try to preserve the head. That makes sense, right? It makes sense because everything emanates from the head. And so you're gonna try to protect the head. And in that culture, whoever was in charge, you protected them because that's where your identity, that's where your provision came from. Everything was located at the head. And so what does he say? Now, husbands, he does this. He says, this is you in this situation, just like Christ did. Did I spell that right? I can't talk and write at the same time. Husbands, he said, wives, what do you do? 
you submit to your wives. How do you submit to your wives? In the same way Christ loved the church, you love your wives. And so this is the way, as the, as the wife submits, this is the way that the husband submits. The husband, Paul's doing something interesting here because he does something that nobody, really el- nobody else really does in household codes. He actually addresses not the subordinates in the relationship, he actually addresses uh, the ones that, are, that hold the position of authority and power. And, and you can read it, that why, is, why does he use about that much to talk to the wives and about that much to talk to the husbands? Is because he's essentially, he's redefining their understanding of what their role is in the relationship. They are not supposed to lord it over and to be the one in authority. They are supposed to submit and to serve. There, there was no expectation for a husband to love his wife in this way. Everyone served the head. And in this situation, Paul's essentially saying, listen, I want you to think about, I want you to think about how you actually operate and what the head actually is. I want to redefine it for you. So here's, here's basically what he does. If you're confused about what I'm saying, let me throw this up there. Maybe this will help. Um, Paul's, this is his household code. Paul essentially takes a common culturally accepted idea of an asymmetrical relationship that's characterized by authority and submission. Asymmetrical says there's one here and there's one here and it's asymmetrical. This is the way they act, they serve them, it's imbalanced. And what he does is he makes it a symmetrical relationship, a reciprocal relationship characterized by mutual submission. So what does marriage look like in the new humanity? It doesn't look like the asymmetrical relationship that they found in Rome, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish households. It looks like the way Christ looks. We have a new controlling narrative for how we live life. This is how we image and bear the gospel in our homes to the world. So the responsibility lays on men and women. But remember, he's addressing the men. I know we got, we're running out of time, but he's addressing the men Right, And so the question is, well, what does this actually practically look like? Well, l- let's see what Paul says, because he, gives some, he puts some handles on here to help us to see it. To make her holy by cleansing her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So notice what he does, and don't miss this. It's really easy to gloss over But what does he do? He gives the man who is now submitting to the woman, he gives him domestic duties that were typically reserved for the wives and for the slaves. What was that? Well, to cleanse things and to wash things, that was women's work, to say it bluntly. To actually take stains and remove stains from clothing, there weren't any men doing that. Men weren't doing that. That was not their responsibility. You know who did the ironing? If there wasn't ironing to be done, to take the wrinkles out, it was the women that were doing it. And so don't miss what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I want you to assume the same service and duties that you think are beneath you, and I want you to exchange your authority for submission. I want you to do the things you would expect her to do but not just do those things, but to see yourself and to see her differently, which is what he says in verse 28. This is what he says in verse 20. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So how do we we look at this? We don't see ourselves as the head, What do we do? We see ourselves as the body, he would say. Talking to the people that were in the position of power in the room, he says, I want you to think about how you see yourself and how you see her. And no longer are you to see yourself where she serves you and she protects you. Now what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to feed, you're supposed to care for, and you're supposed to protect her the way that she would protect you, the way she would give honor to you, you're supposed to give honor to her. And, and so he flips on its head, right? He essentially said, essentially what he's saying is, I want you to treat her as if she were a man just like you. He's not erasing gender, but he's erasing the distinctions, the earthly distinctions that we place on one another by gender. Because remember, we're clothed in Christ. We see, 
what Christ created us to be, I mean, who God created us to be and who Christ redeemed us to be. And we treat one another like that. Um, we look at our spouses that way. And I can tell you from my experience in my, in my life, I mean, we, by far, we, we don't have a perfect marriage. I'm not a perfect husband. Bronco's not a perfect wife. But here's the thing I would say is when we have operated out of mutual submission, we have experienced freedom and joy and fullness in our marriage. And when we haven't, we have experienced the opposite of that in those situations. When we submit to one another, when we help one another, when we serve one another, when we see one another as equals in our relationship, things go the way God designed them to go. And when we don't, things go really bad. And that has been the story throughout centuries. And that's why Paul says the best way is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he ends with this thought, he ends with this thought. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. He reiterates all of his thesis statements. He's, he's a good writer and the wife must respect her husband, right? Don't forget if you need kind of like the cliff note version for the old school folks in here, here's the old school uh, cliff note version. Submit to one another, love one another, respect one another. And here's the way this plays out. I'm gonna finish one thing over here and I'll make our parting statement. So basically here's what you have. You've got husbands, I'll just put an H, and you have wives. If you follow, if we follow this template, we, talk, we call it upside down Jenga. You know what Jenga is, right? Jenga is when you got the little blocks and you take one and you, stick, you, you keep pulling them out and you stick it on top. And that's the way that uh, our, our fallen relationships work. Well, who gets to be in charge? Who gets to make the decision? And we keep trying to outdo one another. We try to place ourselves on top. Well, ultimately the, the, op, the uh, object of the game Jenga is the whole thing eventually falls down when you start pulling the, all these things out, right? And that's the way a lot of relationships work. Anytime that you're trying to lord over the other person or you know, that type of thing, when you're, when, when you're inverting this, it is not the gospel, it's not modeling Christ, problems happen. So we do upside down Jenga. This is what I think Paul's saying is he says that what ends up happening is when both parties are continually serving, oh, I messed up, we'll go that way. That's just harder than it looks. This is why I don't use a dry erase board very often. When both parties are doing this, instead of trying to dominate and find out oh, who gets to be the authority here, who's the spiritual leader in the home? Well, Paul would say to your partners, you do it together. You submit to one another. You honor one another. You respect one another. And that's the good news of the gospel. So our question, we've we got to finish, is marriage all about who's in charge? I would say no. I don't think that's what the gospel says. I believe the gospel, scripture affirms mutual submission in marriage. Both the husband and wife live and lead together in marriage by submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ for the furtherance of the gospel. This is the message the world needs. This is the message the world is longing for to see people that are not battling for position or asking the question, well, who's in charge here? Who's the authority? Who's, who's a subordinate here? But when two people join together and they become one flesh, which is what Paul said, right? In Ephesians, Ephesians 5, he says, for you shall leave your father and mother and you shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. When you become one, then you value one another as if it's yourself. And so what does that mean for us? Well, Paul is directing most attention to the men. And so I wanna close with this. Most of this message in the household that day, whenever it was read, was not to the subordinates in the Roman culture. It was to the people that were in the higher levels of power in the culture. And that happened to be in their culture, men. Now we live in a culture where that's not the case in our surrounding culture by and large, but it still happens, right? And here's, here's what I would say is to biblical manhood, because that, that phrase likes to get thrown around a lot. What is biblical manhood? Biblical manhood is opening the doors for women to have the same opportunities as the men.
It's fighting for women to have a voice. And in the home, in the home, what it means for us is that we view our spouses, our wives, as the very image of Christ himself. And we clothe ourselves with Christ and we submit to our spouses, which is an active choice of the will. And as we do that, what do we do? We model in our homes. If you wonder what spiritual leadership is, and I've been doing premarital counseling for almost 30 years. And one of the questions I always ask is I say, hey, what, what do you think your role is? I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader of the home. I talk to the guys and I say, what does that mean? Most of them have no idea. And most of them live for the rest of their life with this, low, this kind of low boil of feeling like, well, I don't know what it is, but I don't feel like I'm doing it very well. So let me just simplify it for you. Biblical manhood, following Jesus, is simply serving your wife. It's loving your wife. It's consistently elevating her in a sense so that she can become what she's supposed to be. And that's how we live and model Christ in our homes. And there's no really distinction other than it just looks different for men and women. It looks different for husbands and wives. And that's what God's calling us to, isn't it? He's calling us to be the light of the gospel, to live as as those that would usher in the kingdom of God into a fallen, broken world. And I believe that the world is longing for that. They're longing to see the church live in the freedom of the gospel and valuing one another and loving one another. So that's what I got for today. Let me finish by praying for us. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for loving us and sacrificing yourself for us. I thank you that you call us to nothing short of what you've done for us. And I pray that in our marriages and our future marriages, uh, the people that are, are kind of picking up the pieces from broken marriages, I pray that in all of our relationships, we would, we would look to you for our healing in whatever area it may need to be found. I pray, God, that we would embody Christ in the way that we treat each other in our homes, that we would love and respect one another, we would submit to one another, we'd be imitators of God, and in the same way that you sacrifice, that we would sacrifice for one another. Bring us joy, Father, as we continue to take off the old and put on the new, and we become who you've created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.